Some institutions will fail you, but we never will. It's replacement level morality. My name is Joseph. I'm Andrew. You know what I really enjoyed listening to for a huge part of my adulthood, Andrew? Uh, would you say NPR? I was going to say National Public Radio. Absolutely. And while I was never the kind of person who was going to paying into the system to get myself one of those sweet tote bags, I I certainly had it as my primary radio destination from ages 18 to to 37. You now, almost 20 years basically is what I almost solely listened to while I was in the car. You might have been the only person who enjoyed NPR and Rush Limbaugh at the same time. Uh, you know, I I would I would switch between the two. I would kind of like, you know, like how you eat healthy and then you eat <laughs> junk food, you know, like I'm going to have some spinach, you know, I'm going to have a nice salad, a little nice, nice balsamic vinaigrette on it. Some maybe some blue cheese crumbles for a little flavor. There's going to be, you know, have this nice flavor profile. It's going to be delicious. It's going to feel good. Now I'm going to eat a delicious cheeseburger. <laughs> it's going to be satisfying and terrible for me. And this was my oh, media consumption habits. It says <laughs> I, a lot about I, me I, as a person. I think the exact same thing about like reading an article, being an adult and the time I spend on Twitter, like there's the, there's the junk food and there's eating your veggies. I, I mourn the loss of NPR though, as I think an increasingly large amount of people are. And it's not to say that it's not there, that it's still not at in our uh, area 91.7 WVXU. I can listen to it whenever I'd like, but it's dead or it is dying or it is in some state of decay, a decrepitude, uh, but essentially becoming unlistenable. And NPR is not by any means unique among the uh, media platforms, legacy media platforms specifically, that are out there that are, are undergoing the same process of slow or fast destruction, depending on which one you're talking about. And that's what I'd like to talk about today, Andrew. Is that is that acceptable topic for you? Do you, do you think that you could, there's some meat on this bone? It is. And though my, uh, my personal experience with NPR is extremely limited, I do have some very vivid memories of taking my phone to a repair shop and having to fiddle around with this device in my car called a radio where I found it. And I'm like, all right, I will try to listen to this. And it's, it's real rough right now. I, I like talk radio. I like podcasts. <laughs> it's rough. If you haven't availed yourself of NPR in a while, or you're like my zoomer friend here who never did it. NPR was always uh, marketed basically as upscale liberal radio to a degree. It was never, it was never something that had a fully neutral tone. It, it took the, the, we'll call it the timesian approach to trying to, to play it down the middle, even if it's, if it's air and if it's, it's position and it's talent wasn't real, didn't really have their heart in it. They it made the effort to, so that it remained approachable for people who didn't necessarily share the same basal level politics. Right. Right. Like they put, they tried to maintain the illusion and it was like, everybody kind of knows where you're coming from, but you have to try to talk to both sides and not, not, not both sides. Isn't even the right way to say it. you have to try to talk to everyone within the Overton window. Right. Everyone who potentially is a rational 
would be consumer of your product, right? You, you may have a perspective and that's coloring your, your choices, but you know, other people will be listening and you want them to listen, even if they don't agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Well, NPR, like the times, like the post, like local newspapers, like so much of legacy media outlets has undergone this transformation where the product they have created no longer even pretends at not only speaking to the widest audience possible, but even the concept of objectivity is simply not something they're focused on any further. Actively hostile to it. And you pointed out the phrase that you like so much applies here. It happened slowly and then all at once. And it is an undeniable you know, consequence that we are now living through of the disintegration of media trust in the electorate, in the population as a whole. And you can't, you can't listen to it anymore and not notice if you are at a certain level of educational attainment and self-awareness, right? Well, I actually think it's more noticeable for very blue collar workers and like, uh, people who don't have that educational attainment where it's like, they're just speaking in a way that is alien to me. Yeah. Fair point. Even if you are not someone that has the educational attainment that I might've had in mind, it's probably obvious enough to you at this point with that established. What I really wanted to talk about was how did we get here? This happened, like I said, slowly and then all at once. So what happened over the course of this 20 years that have led us to Trusted media outlets that may have had a perspective, but understood their assignment as the fourth estate and what they were supposed to be doing. And how is it that they have arrived at the spot where they have become akin to propaganda outlets for a very specific set of political priors? And I think that's worth unpacking because if we're going to discuss the decay of institution, the process of decay, how did this set in? What did we leave it outside? Did it get a bunch of water on it? <laughs> like <laughs> what happened? What happened to this thing that we enjoyed for decades and decades and generations of Americans kind of got spoiled for having. And then suddenly over the course of a single human generation just fell to ashes. Like so many things you can blame the internet. I wanted to blame Nixon. I figured that there was a generation that grew up in this shadow of Watergate that just said, oh, taking down Republicans is our job. That's how you get famous. Well, that's interesting you bring that up. I'll, I'll get to my internet point in a second. But that that the Watergate experience and how reporters treated their jobs in that era is very informative to of, of the starting point of – of where I still think we were 20 years after that. So that's in the 70s. I think even into the 90s, reporters saw their job as being anti-authoritarian more than anything else. Power was to be distrusted as a, as a base level uh, position. I am a reporter. I am here to report on the things that are occurring in the world. This is going to cause me to see and interact with and investigate powerful institutions. And doubtlessly, I will find something or someone within those institutions that is abusing that power. My duty is to inform the public of this abuse. This leads you to a position where whether you're Republican or you're a Democrat, if you're right or left, you do not trust power. 
we saw a stunning example of this today, actually, where, as far as I can tell, a city councilman in Cincinnati just proposed giving a restaurant a bunch of money for no reason. Yes. And a little mini media firestorm later, it was like, wait, this is completely undefensible. Yes, it is. Okay, let's not do that. How is it that we went from this anti-authoritarian ethos to one where I don't know how to describe it aside from bootlicking for a very specific kind of authority. I think that has to do with the kind of person you had as a reporter. Reporters were not, in a prior era, a solely hyper-educated, white-collar profession done via laptop. Reporters, while they may not necessarily have been, they may have been very smart, They didn't necessarily come from strong educational backgrounds. Having a degree in journalism was not something that existed for a very long time. Yet journalism still occurred, right? Right. So you had college-educated people, potentially, but certainly not people with a specialty education in journalism as a craft. Jonah Goldberg likes to talk about how when he was learning journalisming, it was get good at something, start to write about it, be a journalist on that beat. And that, that was, that was the career path. There was no Columbia journalism school. Well, there might've been, but it wasn't, it wasn't the path, the only path that could be taken. There were certainly, there were certainly elite journalism institutions, but they were so small relative to the huge journalism infrastructure in place. Again, pre-internet that those people didn't have the level of purchase on the culture that you would otherwise expect. If you have 1% of your people are going to the Columbia journalism school, I mean, that's something worth noting, but your other 99% are not having that experience. And they're coming from different backgrounds and they're working in an entirely different way. It was a blue collar intellectual field, something that does not exist anymore. Would you, right? would you call that uh, intellectual diversity? I would. And it was by the dint of the fact that, you know, you again, you have these these anti-authoritarian sort of minded folks. This was not a profession that necessarily paid well, but was approachable because it didn't have the sense that that inborn credentialism that so many other intellectual fields had. Because, again, you didn't go to journalism school. You, you got good at covering things in writing. Anyone can get good at that if they're smart enough. So... It is a field you got into, not necessarily because that was your intention, but because you found yourself aligned for a number of different ways with it. And it was an earned skill. It was a trade. And you worked in it for 30 years. And then you retired. That's what journalism was. And so what happened to this large complex of small journalism outlets and uh, large employment sector Imagine a world, Andrew. This is literally before your time. But imagine a world uh, where this, this might be. So growing up, I used to drive past the cle- the plane dealer building every day. Mm-hmm. It's huge. There was a large physical building that people worked in to produce a newspaper. So I, I have vague memories of this world. Well, uh, imagine a world where the newspaper the Cincinnati Inquirer, okay? The newspaper of the newspaper of record for our area of the country would run television ads 
to get subscribers because, and this was their tagline, to a half million people, we are the news. So they had a paper circulation of 500,000. Okay. That is a major operation, not only in the amount of people you need to create content for that newspaper, but to produce it physically, right? And to deliver it to all of the homes in all of Cincinnati. I had a paper out. This was a time when a local newspaper, like the Cincinnati Inquirer, would have somebody that they would, you know, a reporter that they would send to major news events, like themselves. The city and the lo- and, and your and your region were being covered by real people who are going to places and investigating things. And this was a, something you could do and be paid money for by a corporation that was profiting from it. And uh, you can't do that with the internet because the information goes a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the it, it's interesting that I, one of my favorite movies to watch to sort of capture the last gasps of this of this industry before it knew it was gasping is spotlight. Have you ever seen it? I've not. Very worthwhile. Excellent film. Got a bunch of Oscars, deserved every one of them. You have a lot of people who were in that movie that you definitely know are actors, but they do a really good job playing the role they're assigned. Like Michael Keaton is in it. Mark Ruffalo is in it. It's, it's got a bunch of that guys in it. It got a bunch of Oscars. It deserves them. And the story is about the Boston globe. So it's portraying the Boston globe right when Marty Baron takes over. Okay. And they are doing their big story on the child sex abuse scandal of the Catholic church in Boston. And it starts in basically 2000 and then ends in 2001. Okay. So it's computers have come around, but the internet has not. Right. And it is, it is a fascinating study into the world of what journalism on that level looked like, where you had like five or six people whose job it was that they were investigating the story and they were, you know, chasing down leads, having conversations with people, coming back, you know, trying to figure this whole thing out and how to piece it together and write it and, and get, you know, what's true, what's not, all that, right? Not long after the time period in which that story occurs, the adoption of high-speed internet access on a on a basically on a consumer scale is what really starts to destroy local journalism as a profitable um, endeavor, and that's really where the problem starts. Because the the way these newspapers made money was they sold advertising space in this thing that they were distributing to a half million people, right? Like, well, it didn't cost much to ever get the newspaper—a couple bucks, right? You're not getting enough revenue off of just selling your Sunday uh, edition to your, your people or your 50 cent daily to people. It's that everyone in that newspaper is paying a lot of dollars to be able to have advertising space within it so that you could, you know, attract customers to whatever business you're looking for. Like the sun, the, the revenue came from the Sunday inserts for like, you know, different uh, uh, sales at different like locations. There was always the Friday, uh, the black Friday one that occurred on Thanksgiving they had like all of the Black Friday deals. So like in 1998, that's how you knew like, oh, I could get a I could get a television at, at uh, Steinberg's for, you know, half off or something like that. So this uh, this you're telling me this model where people paid for the privilege of reading ads didn't survive the Internet. I'm afraid it didn't. I'm afraid when people realized they could select out of that, it didn't didn't the, the model didn't hold. And 
as the internet became fast and accessible, information started to flow on it very easily. And suddenly all these places, okay, let's have a web presence, but how am I generating revenue off of this? Everyone can now just read all of this news and content for free or very little. Like I can get at internet ads, but no one knows what that's supposed to be. No one knows what its actual value is. It's an entirely new market. So suddenly you had this huge subscriber drop off as you have your your technologically agile people realizing that this is a, you know, a leak as far as their time and energy and money. So they're like, oh, I'm not going to read the newspaper anymore. So cut that off. And then you've got this big news organization that you've developed with this revenue stream that's dries up in like it in, in overnight in in business terms, right? Like 18 months, 24 months after this stuff really starts to set in, you start to see the first big waves of layoffs in the mid 2000s. So this sounds this sounds like a great thing from a socialist perspective where uh, there's no more profit motive. Without the gross profit motive, preventing people from from uh, placing these ads and doing gross daily work they just did it for for free and 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 no <laughs> <laughs> without, without the pollution of their incentives they, they they engaged in a higher nobler form of journalism so I'm afraid that your socialist dream did not come to pass. Because this big downsizing effect that started to occur in the mid-2000s had two effects. One, obviously forced a bunch of people out of their jobs and reduced the amount of jobs within the industry. Uh, but two, it made news far less profitable, which led to closures and consolidations. And when you have news organizations that are no longer being run out of a local area and instead of part of something like part of like Gannett or something like that, there's a lot less concern about the product itself, except as it is a generation of revenue. And this means you're not spending as much on the product. It means you, you really have to save your costs on labor because it's a labor intensive product. So you're, you have less journalists, what journalists you still have, you can afford to, to pay a lot less now. Like I can't, I can no longer have pensions in newsrooms. That was common back in the day. Now, now they are unheard of. Um, pensions and everything kind of yeah. unheard of. And to the degree that you still need labor, you are not only paying your permanent employees less, you're also trying to harvest as much unpaid labor as possible. So you have lots of unpaid internships and freelancers where, you know, you're just paying by the article, paying by the photograph. So this becomes a much more difficult profession to turn into a trade that is a stable income for a career. Except for one class of people. Rich people. The thing about capitalism is that uh, the people who are successful at it their their descendants get to uh, be successful at it, regardless of if they engage with the system or not. Right. There's plenty. Once you reach a certain level of capital attainment, you and your 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 descendants are going to be taking advantage of that uh, that free uh, value that comes from being invested in the market or owning property or owning things that have a passive income, such that. 
the labor that your descendants focus on and applying does not necessarily have to be economically useful labor. As as Thomas as Thomas Piketty put it, R is greater than G, which means the rate of return from investments is fa- grows faster than the economy. So wealth continues to grow, compounding on itself. So suddenly you go from journalism being a blue collar intellectual field with a great deal of intellectual diversity. That is a, a trade that you can can hone and and enhance and you know, go through a career with to something that does not pay well enough to really support economically a family, uh, but is a sufficient uh, prestige time sink that someone with a trust fund can very easily find themselves in journalism and have that be their quote job while their economic needs are being taken care of by the success of others. And slowly and then all at once, journalism became a field for the elite. Places like the Cincinnati Inquirer dried up. Your talent pool for local journalism became shallow. At the same time, elite journalistic destinations, major television networks, major news networks, major print outlets that we've already mentioned, they become dominated by the moneyed intellectual class of the people who live in those areas. The Times no longer has any incentive to diversify its workforce by pulling in talent from other parts of the country uh, that might have different kinds of experiences and backgrounds, and instead it is harvesting solely from elite institutions with, quote, journalism schools, Columbia, NYU, Harvard, wherever. Once you start that process of creating a uniculture in media where everyone has gone to the same schools, they start to have a very narrow band of life experiences. Uh, you, you, These are all people who come from a very privileged background. They they all come from and have access to essentially unlimited resources for you know their own personal well being. You you don't have those same kinds of access to lived experience within your class of people who are supposed to be communicating the events of the world to the public. Yeah, this is this is a particular disaster with some of the uh, people are going to lose democracy because of high gas prices takes. Uh, there was actually someone retweeted this from exactly a year ago when people were mocking the idea of high inflation. There was just a family that was like, hey, milk's really expensive and it's gotten worse. And people are like, why are you drinking so much milk? It was really gross, just a, a year later. Yes. And and all the people who were dunking on them were the people who have no concept of living a working class life with a large family. That's not something they've ever seen. They don't know anyone like that. They've never they've never been even adjacent to it. If you are somebody that grew up in a New York suburb with medium rich parents who went to 
either the really good public school or private school, and then had a forty to fifty thousand dollar a year private education in college at name your you know second tier sub Ivy New England school. You went to Boston College, okay? You don't know anyone that had eight kids and the price of a gallon of milk mattered. That's not something you have, you you don't know anything about that. And the people who would know about that don't fucking exist anymore. They're not there to tell you about it. Because So maybe you don't, but one of your colleagues is from that background, or one of your colleagues had a neighbor like that, or or your colleague was one of, or you went to church with them, or one of your colleagues was one of those kids and can tell you about that. This is like the J.D. Vance thing, right? Like where he became popular because he was an interlocutor to that community. He went to Yale. He was very smart. He was a lawyer, but he also was from a poor place and was in the military. And he could speak to a multitude of experiences in a way that someone from the elite background could actually absorb, right? This is where he got his original appeal. Well, that guy doesn't fucking exist in journalism anymore. So all you've got is all you and your blue check buddies dunking on this family who is sincerely imparting their their troubles to someone who is inve- investigating it, and that's the takeaway. And, and there's just no empathy to well, you why do you have so many kids? Or like from people with probably a median of one kid, if that. If that, yeah. And, you know, I'm not – I never want to be the someone who preaches to someone to have kids because I do not have any and nor will I have any for entirely, you know, personal reasons. I, but kids, you know people who do. Yeah, I know people who do. I know people are going to have kids, all that stuff. I'm very sympathetic to kids. I like kids. I'm not anti-kids in any way. Kids are great. Elites tend to have less children because we exist now in a post-industrial society where, where children – for people who are in the elite economic strata are expensive and really unnecessary for your own personal existence. This is not the case going back just a few generations, right? Where you needed to have kids for economic reasons and security reasons and all that. You don't really, if you are rich enough, you just do not have to have children. And these people exist in that world. So if they don't want to have kids, they don't have kids. Fine. But you still need to understand that there are people in the world, a lot of them, in fact, who have children, sometimes a lot of them, right? And that part of your job is to communicate to those people and they have completely lost the plot. The story that got to me was not the, we must lower gas prices to um, prevent democracy from failing. It was Dasha Burns at at NBC News who did the John Fetterman interview. Did you hear about that? I did. So Dasha Burns, I would say Zoomer-ish, young uh, NBC News reporter, but she's like a throwback in her style. She reminds me much more of someone from 30 years ago. And I don't know if this is, I would love to know more about her background. Because it seemed odd to me that she seemed like such a throwback in her style, which was much more down the middle. And what she did is she did the interview with Fetterman and she discussed, she asked questions, Fetterman would speak, all of that. And then she added, the context of this is what you should know is 
I would speak. It, my words would appear on the screen in front of John Fetterman because he and, and he would read it and then he would respond to me. And when I tried to engage with him in small talk before we started recording, he could not understand what I was. He could not have carry on a conversation with me. He cannot process words from my mouth. This is her job to report this information. <laughs> like there was no qualitative judgment. There was no like this means he shouldn't be a senator or his you know his recovery isn't you know at the mean for someone who's had a stroke. There was it no was- judgment. It was here are the facts as I have experienced them and I'm duty bound to report to you. And for this sin, Dasha Burns was dragged across not just Twitter, but media Twitter. Yeah. It was, it was the living out of the New York times revolt from 2020 where we must conceal facts if they are harmful to the democratic party agenda where it was neutrality is something we can't pretend to. And it is an active bad because we need to participate in tilting the scales as much as possible. That was, that was a open argument that was advanced that yes. Neutrality is bad. Post 2016, there was a clear decision that was made by the people who are in the institution to start doing that. And so much of what you hear, like Ben Smith actually did a piece for his new outfit, Semaphore, I think it's called, where he talked about like the frozen conflict at the New York Times that started in 2020 mm-hmm. of of the new old guard versus the, the new wave and how like that circumstance and what happened there. The blow up happened and... James Bennett got fired and then everyone basically like got called off the field. Like we're not doing this right now. It's an interesting read. I I recommend it because that, I mean the, the, the fact that that conflict is frozen at the times doesn't mean that the decisions aren't being made on a micro level by the people who are still there to advance that agenda. Right. Like, perhaps like the HR element of the revolt and actually like removing people from their jobs is, is frozen. But the, the, the woke new wave hyper intellectualized left wing staffers who have now adopted the position that neutrality is fascism. They're still out there writing their pieces and getting them published every day. And they're going to continue to, and they're not going to stop. They're the people who are producing for MSNBC when they do their their pieces about how gas prices have to be low to save democracy or book guests on Joanne Reed's show to tell everyone how everything is white supremacy. You know, they're the people who are writing post articles about how somebody uh, dressing up in blackface at a Halloween party is, you know, the cause is, is, is the reason why society is melting down around us. As long you know, as like, it's not Ralph Northam. That doesn't is, count. <laughs> Except Ralph Northam, who can continue and finish his term as governor because his lieutenant governor was also racist or something. I forget exactly what happened there. Like the guy who was going to replace him if he stepped down turned out to be bad, too. So everyone just kind of threw up their hands like, fuck, I guess. Fine. Well, just they just ran out the news cycle. Like, that's fine. They'll forget. And, and I guess to wrap up this particular topic. Having identified the issue, which is you turned being a reporter into a job with no money, but all of the power to communicate. 
And so it would just attracted people who wanted to do it for power rather than because it's a career where it's like they're pseudo civil servant. This being the natural consequence makes a lot of sense. Like so, so it was actually the profit motive rather than ruining it was preventing it from destroying itself. In a weird way, well, there was a number of things that were just kind of had created this happy accident of this institution that really worked. It was the profit motive. It was the large amount of people that you needed to do it meant that there just had to be a certain level of, of base intellectual neutrality and, and stability in order to make an institution that large work. Right, you have um, a, a couple thousand employees. You have you have to make it so that some people who don't see eye to eye with you politically feel comfortable enough in there to do their job. Exactly, and all of those, and it was run locally, so there was more of a civic concern because it's not something that's being run entirely for profit motive, and all of these impulses vanish, and. Now you have small hyper elite institutions that are either big national um, names where people are attracted to being wanted to, to, to communicate to the world and wield that power or there are hacks that are barely getting by on a local level for whom journalism is, is um, a hobby. I don't know what to call it. Activism, maybe status status. Yeah. You turn journalism into a status symbol. Yeah. And so it attracts people who don't need to make money at it and want the status. And it's I don't... very old money. Like yeah. in Great Gatsby, there's like the old money and the new money. The old money can be journalism. They don't need to worry about their bills. They they get to do fun things. New money doesn't do that. Well, now that I've covered the decay of one institution, did you have another that you wanted to talk about? Well, I don't I don't think the institution itself has decayed so much as uh, the coverage and how people talk about it. But I wanted to talk about plunging in approval ratings, the Supreme Court. Uh, The last functional branch of government. (laughs) The last branch of government that didn't have wildly swinging and just terrible approval ratings. Like Congress, everybody hates Congress, no matter what. Uh, the presidency, everybody likes Congress, or everybody likes it if it's their guy. But SCOTUS, you know, it was it was kind of okay. It, it was very stable, had a very uh, renowned aspect to it that gave it some resiliency for a little bit. And this is good. It's explicitly designed to be resilient against public opinion and not responsive so that, you know, if the law says this murderer has to go free and everybody knows he does it, we don't take a vote on that. The law just happens as automatically as can be possible for an institution made up of humans. Right. This way everyone knows the rules and they can live with a certain stability that comes with there being rules that seem to apply to everyone. And in the wake of Dobbs and some other uh, rulings, but mostly Dobbs, there has been annoyingly predictable backlash where, you know, uh, the other day, uh, Amy Comey Barrett threw out a particular objection to Biden's uh, student debt cancellation. And as far as my limited understanding goes, all of these debt cancellation challenges 
everyone knows, including Biden, that the act itself is illegal. But the question is, do these particular challenges have standing? Yeah, so it's just find, yeah. finding the standing argument that sticks, which they did eventually find one, apparently, and it got the the debt cancellation has been stayed or whatever. But that's yeah, the one of the lower courts thought that. But yeah, so it's and any particular case, you can have wildly different rules because it's not at the central question isn't actually the central question from a legal perspective. So there are all these people on Twitter who are, well, Amy Coney Barrett did the right thing, but I'm still suspicious that she's just building up goodwill to try to steal the election. That kind of like nonsense. Oh, they, the Supreme court ruled this way. So the Supreme court is legitimate today and tomorrow it might not be just based entirely on the policy preferences of certain commentators. Mark Joseph Stern, the most obvious hackish example of someone who will completely, you know, distort the facts and just doesn't live in the same reality as everybody else. And his Supreme court rules this way. Here's why that's, you know, there's not even a pretending that it's legally correct. It's, I want this policy outcome and I didn't get it. Yeah. Ellie Mistel is my favorite version of that. Who's a, yes. Another, uh, in air quotes, legal commentator. Who's, uh, just absolutely in hock to his ideological preferences and will bend any argument, uh, such that, uh, anything that doesn't grant him what he wants is illegitimate, usually because it's racist. Um, it's, it's, there's a little cottage industry of these people out there and they sometimes get together. And it's just such a cynical play, right? Like we talk about how SCOTUS actually had some legitimacy left, uh, even deep into 2020, it correctly laughed out of court, some of the stupid Trump lawsuits and said, we're not, we're not dealing with this. And this is legitimately important, right? Like the judge, the judiciary has to be somewhat respected where you can acknowledge that, okay, even if I disagree with this decision, I respect the process that led to this decision. And that just hasn't been happening. There's a meme that two seats are stolen in the court. First of all, it can't be the case that two seats are stolen. Like if if Kavanaugh is illegitimate because the president should have to should get to appoint at any point in their term, then Amy Coney Barrett's legitimate. If Amy Coney Barrett's illegitimate because the voters should weigh in, then Kavanaugh's completely legitimate. But- Let's dispose of the idea of stealing a Supreme Court seat entirely. It cannot be stolen. It can only be approved of by the Senate. The, I right. mean, regardless of some politics got played such that the Republicans took advantage of when they controlled that chamber at the time vacancies occurred to ensure that they got the opportunity to appoint people to the court. Uh, that is merely what it is. Politics. That is the political process playing out such that this is what happened. It, it, bitch and moan all you want. Uh, when Scalia died, there was an election that was held. And who won the Senate? Republicans. Precisely. So so guess what? The political process played out. Everyone knew the stakes. One party won. They appointed a Supreme Court justice. Nothing was fucking stolen. 
That is what is in the constitution. It's all so hysterical and it's hysterical in a really damaging way. I've become more convinced lately as we think about all the democracy and peril takes that are blindingly one-sided. America was always kind of like that. Like there have always been partisan hacky media outlets. There's always been a like not present of a certain threat of political violence. It's always been kind of knocking on the door, just the way that we handle our affairs. Why hasn't there been more disputed elections? Why did the process of Congress seating electors just kind of happen? Well, the Supreme Court would was pretty much calling balls and strikes. Like FDR, the only fight that he lost was trying to pack the court. So if somebody tried to mess with an electoral process, the Supreme Court was there to just end a constitutional crisis before it happened. And, well, I mean, FDR did fight, lose other battles. That's why he tried to pack the court. He just lost that battle too. And what battles was he losing? Well, it was the court saying, these things you want to do are not permitted. You you have no legal basis by which to actually do these things without changing the nature of governance in the United States. You've not done that. And you need to do that if you wish to do these things. And when he tried to usurp the institution to have his way, that is when he lost a political battle for the sure. first time. I think that this is up until the current moment, the civic compromise that we all agreed to in spirit, if not explicitly, which is, yes, some justices are going to be on the court that are more ideologically aligned in this way than that way at different times, depending on who appoints things. But we need to have an institution that we all decide is the final arbiter or the system cannot function the way we are presently operating within it. Like if we don't all collectively agree that this is the end bill be all and the final word, and we're all going to lay down arms and respect whatever it is that they say, then we are eliminating the backstop to potential political violence in the future. Right. And I think Certainly the media's coverage of all of this has a lot to do with how this has changed, but I think it has more to do with how politics and how people treat politics in general has changed, such that it has become increasingly difficult for very online, very politically involved, very current events aware people to recognize the validity in an argument that they don't agree with. And Dobbs is a perfect example of that. What is Dobbs? Dobbs is a decision that essentially dissected why Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. Something that was the very first thing I ever learned in constitutional law. Something that people such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself consistently said. This is a bad piece of law. This is not well written and well decided. It is... You you are three steps removed from anything that's actually in the Constitution to justify this. At a certain point, someone is going to put together the argument necessary to say this this isn't real and shouldn't exist. And decisions for abortion should be the province of different processes than this one. That's the only dis- – that's all Dobbs actually did. All Dobbs said was this is bullshit. Here's 50 pages on why it is that we've you know had 50 years almost to put together with that in mind 
do whatever you want. If you're a state, if you're, you know, want to pass a constitutional amendment on this, like you follow other processes to decide to regulate this issue. But this decision here, we all know that this was wrong. So we're going to just finally say it is, and we're going to unlock the policy, you know, the, the policy politics of abortion such that democracy can take its, its, its course and people can make decisions on what they want to do with this. Yeah. It's telling that the supposed, uh, loss of legitimacy came from SCOTUS just unilaterally giving up a power that had taken for itself. It said, actually, we don't have the power to super legislate this thing. So we're just going to return it to the branches from which we took it. And that's, that's the catastrophe. It's all so hyperbolic and frustrating. You were talking about how people can't see the validity in another in any other argument. Anytime someone tries to post something reasonably sane about here is how we compromise or here is how this situation gets resolved or here is how this person is thinking, uh, there's just this inevitable torrent of replies of I hate having to compromise on my right to exist. If everything is existential politics, there's not really an alternative to violence, right? Like yeah. if your right to exist is being threatened, okay, take up arms, but it's not, it, you're pretending that it is because it's powerful to argue to an extent and people are kind of getting sick of it. But if it's actually like this type of person is being sent to the gulag, well, we have the second amendment. <laughs> Second Amendment <laughs> solutions. I, uh, yeah, the the raising of everything to existential stakes might actually be a good topic for us to discuss in the future because uh, I, I I question if – I question your statement of they don't actually believe that for some people. Uh, they might believe it on some level. But uh, a phrase that I am partial to, revealed preference or GTFO. Oh, God, I, yes. I'm being kind of facetious with we have the Second Amendment. But if your existence was actually threatened, that is what you would do. Yeah. A- and their revealed preference speaks they don't volumes actually, yeah. over what their brain is actually telling them they believe. That is an excellent point. you know, And maybe that's worth pointing out sometimes when you, you come across these sort of conniption fits. Where people are, are saying things like that, say, if you believe that, if you believe your existence is under threat, why haven't you gotten a gun and started to defend your existence with lethal force? Because that's what any rational person would do if they genuinely thought that if someone tried to break into my house with 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 ill intent, well, anyone trying to break into my house is probably got ill intent. So uh, I would defend myself and my family with lethal force and I would not feel any hesitation in doing so because that's what any rational person would do. Right. So if that's how you actually feel, well, you haven't taken up arms. You're just complaining about it on the internet. Um, so you must not actually feel like your life is under threat. And, you know, there's a whole theory I have about how some of the smartest people on the planet are the ones who also desperately need to touch grass. Some of the people I love to listen to, some of the people I love to follow are also the ones who have just a, a diminishing and dwindling attachment to reality. And that often is the case where you just get super hyperbolic because you're just locked into this loop 
where you've not experiencing anything else. So everything feels super urgent in your mind. And then it takes a moment like this. So you don't actually feel that way because you have not committed to a course of action that would actually suggest that. Touch grass is such a perfect phrase. It is. Because it's it's so evocative of all you have to do is go outside, maybe talk to some people at your local bar. Things are pretty okay. Anyone Talk to your neighbors. Scrabble later. later. Like, yeah. It's okay. It, it, working yourself up to, to hysterics on the internet is so much less productive than, than going outside. And if you talk to them, you might hear about how maybe inflation is a problem because milk is costing a lot more. Well, you'd you know? have to have non-rich neighbors. So I don't know if... Yeah, uh, true. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're living in the Upper West Side of, of Manhattan, maybe... Maybe that's not the course of action. If you're touching grass, it's just going to be the grass that someone's borzoi pooped in anyway. (laughs) It's one thing to talk about the media and how it's the mainstream media outlets have decayed because in the end, there is a free market solution and that free market solution is being developed. You're just getting different media, getting new media, and you're getting what I like to call biased, honest, biased media. Places that have a perspective, but they're being very upfront with you about that perspective and then telling you, you should go to other sources and investigate their experience as well. If you want someone else's perspective, like daily wire is a perfect example of that. They have no bones about who they are, but they also say, this is what we are. If you would like something else, I go explore crooked media, I guess like that they're out there. It's all out there. You know where it is Mm -hmm. and you should do that. And this way you can, you as a news consumer can absorb two different pieces of information about the same thing and, and draw your own conclusions based on that context. Right. And over, over time we'll, we'll see this new media environment kind of evolve and there'll be a, a new equilibrium that will happen at some point, you know, and as these old institutions lose their revenue sources, whether like carriage fees finally started to collapse for places like CNN and NBC, you know, like all that, like once, once that happens, life will find a way. I don't think there's a solution to this issue with the court. If the court loses its actual legitimacy with the population, um, there's no coming back from that. That said, I think it's a lot less of a problem because it's really only elite people who are questioning its, its legitimacy to begin with. Right. There's the, the people that follow the grifters, most people aren't that online or that into the news, but fortunately, yeah, like, the, we know the, who Mark the Joseph Stein is. All yeah, we know who Mark Joseph Stein is, and we hate him. But ninety nine percent of the humans living in the United States have no concept of who that man is or, or why he's important. Right? The normies will say us all. It, it there. If there's hope, it's found in the pearls, my friend. <laughs> it's 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 uh it's kind of true. There are a lot of areas where I think I'm more than willing to criticize the right. The courts are the one area where the right is pretty unquestionably just correct on all counts, right? Like there was there was such a strong precedent before 2016 that presidents don't get to seat nominees in election year. McConnell extended it by a couple months. That's 
I wish that wasn't the case, but you know, the norms are norms have always changed. It wasn't, but it was bent, not broken. And the response of just dialing it up to 11, it's completely illegitimate is so disproportionate. It made it easier to see Amy Comey Barrett because what they did in regards to the whole situation with, with, uh, Scalia's death and, and Obama wanted to appoint Merrick Garland and they called it illegitimate and a stolen seat. Like all of that rhetoric made it so that cocaine Mitch had zero problems with like force marching Amy Coney Barrett into the, into the court. Like, I mean, you, you, you took this situation, you took it to the fucking extreme. So fuck you guys. <laughs> like, or I'm not doing this. And there was plenty of hypocrisy to go around uh, in that, in that, couple month period it was it was a lot of fun but from a constitutional perspective the republicans did everything right they did the the, the and they the appointed role of the senate to consent implies the the ability to not consent and they just didn't and, consent and i think importantly as well you can complain as much as you would like about process but ultimately the republican party controlled the senate and approved of entirely acceptable, uh, qualified justices to sit on the Supreme Court. All three yep. of them. All they're they're exactly the kind of accomplished, credentialed turbo nerds that you want on the court, making the most asinine, multi-page decisions about questions of law that would befuddle the majority of Americans to even understand. Right. That happens to me all the time where a podcast will be talking about some case and I'll just halfway through think, I have no idea what's happening. I, I could yeah, not rule. This is on this. such some law this is such some some lawyer bullshit right now. Uh, and, and all the they may not necessarily hold the same beliefs about uh jurisprudence that you personally do, but their education is legitimate, their experience is is relevant and their perspective is within the Overton window to bring us all the way back to a phrase used at the beginning of acceptable legal discourse. It's just in a different spot in it. And your failure to understand that it is okay for someone to have a different perspective than you that is within the bounds of logic that, well, that's a you problem. <laughs> like that's not an institutional problem. That's, that's you that's a you problem. And I guess maybe conservatives are used to just not reacting to that because all their Supreme court did for 40 years was March left. And it takes one step to the right. Just one, just one step, Andrew, one solitary step to the right. And suddenly the, it's the end of the fucking Republic. The, the greatest tweet was uh, the court used to be measured and thought and limited in their jurisprudence and someone quote tweeted it with yes they they should be more measured and thoughtful like the warren and burger courts i mean thoughtful measured did you read the dobbs decision there's nothing more thoughtful and measured that i've ever written that i've ever seen in my life but the answer to that question is no nobody reads the decisions yeah which is a real shame because they should. They're very they're incredibly complicated. Like I have definitely had the experience of reading through a decision, going, 
that was pretty compelling. And then reading the sentence going, that's pretty compelling. These are both really hard arguments. And the more you engage with these are tough arguments where reasonable people can disagree, reasonable smart people can disagree, reasonable smart lawyers can disagree. Mm-hmm. Okay. I respect what they do. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes it does come down to a 5-4 decision where one set of ideological priors has decided that they are right and they are going to proceed with explaining why. And what a piece of that process that people don't really understand is the 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 the, the opinion that gets written gets changed so that everyone that is on the quote-unquote winning side ultimately agrees to a certain shared set of facts. So Alito wrote Dobbs under that auspice of here is the shared set of facts by which we have all decided to move forward with this decision and anything else that you feel should have been in here, you need to express on your own time as a concurrence, not linked to this body of work that will represent the new interpretation of law. And that is an important part of compromise with even, even within the winning faction, so to speak. And I mean, everyone gave all this press to just uh, uh, Clarence Thomas writing a, and a concurrence. No one joined about how he's got his own theories about other things that the court should reconsider that he doesn't think are, are real interpretations of the constitution. And that was all anyone ever talked about from Dobbs. No one talked about Alito's actual writing about how Roe was bad law, deserves to be overturned. And here is a fantastic uh, doctoral level thesis as to why that was written so that anyone could read with a college education and understand, by the way. Uh, it's like something that you don't need to be a lawyer to get is what his audience was. And he wrote for it. And he was very successful at that. And no one read that. Instead, they all talked about how Clarence Thomas doesn't want to allow the gays to get married. Like, that isn't even the decision. It is nothing that anyone but Clarence Thomas decided to say. And the other concurrence was Kavanaugh saying, LOL, no, to Clarence yes, Thomas. specifically to Clarence Thomas. I am the swing vote. You have your whole shadow jurisprudence where you think incorporation should be done through the uh, privileges and immunities clause instead of the due process clause. And that has all these other implications down the line. But nobody cares. Like there are, there are not three votes for all that jur- shadow jurisprudence, let alone six or five. Right. There's probably not even two for most. There's of probably them. not two. And there's, there might be two for like individual pieces of that, but that's it. Yeah. Well, anyway, Andrew, it has been a lovely discussion with you today. Yeah. And uh, if you're enjoying all of our takes here on replacement level morality, um, we hope to see you again next week. Thanks for joining.